Hello. Welcome to the Myths and History of Greece and Rome. Chapter 104, Picking Up the Pieces. A new era has dawned for the Roman Empire. Rome is in the hands of a barbarian commander and the Roman world has shifted east. In Constantinople, the empire is still going strong and is about to get stronger, but things are not the same. Latin is still the official language and the language of the law, but most of the population speak Greek. As time goes on, the Greek language and Greek culture will become more and more important in the empire and it will change to reflect this shift. Historians will call the Roman Empire, after the fall of Rome, the Byzantine Empire, after the original name of the capital. Remember, Constantinople used to be called Byzantium. Until the fall of Constantinople in 1453 though, the people and the leaders of the empire will still call it the Roman Empire. We will use whichever term seems appropriate as we go forward with our story. In the late 5th century, what was left of the Roman Empire was led by an Isaurian who used to be called Tarasicadissa Rusum Bladiotes. By the mid-480s, Zeno had already been overthrown once and suffered a few more rebellions. The Isaurian emperor was never popular with the people. He was never loved, but he did a good job and was generally respected. The previous emperor's wife, Verena, was a constant thorn in his side, even though she was the mother of Zeno's wife. In the early 480s, poor old Zeno had to deal with another rebellion led by his mother-in-law. There are many jokes about mothers-in-law, about how difficult they can be to deal with, but poor Zeno probably had one of the worst. Verena had already tried to get rid of him once, the disastrous reign of Basiliscus was the result, and soon she tried again. This time she was imprisoned after Illus came to Zeno's rescue. Zeno made Illus Magister Militum, Master of the Soldiers, but despite this the Emperor never really trusted him. After all, the general had been a big part of the rebellion which brought Basiliscus to the throne, and it was inevitable that one day they would fall out forever. The way it happened was a bit odd, and actually a bit unclear. A rebel loyal to Verena took some territory in Syria. Illus was sent to stamp out the rebellion and restore imperial order. When he arrived, he found the emperor's brother, an incompetent fool called Longinus, was in charge. There was a big argument, and Illus had the emperor's brother thrown into prison. Now, the emperor's brother was an idiot. The emperor's brother was a useless leader, and he was certainly not exactly doing what the emperor wanted. But, and again it's a big but, he was the emperor's brother. And throwing the emperor's brother into prison was probably not a good move if staying in the emperor's good books was important. Zeno flew into a mad rage. He ordered his brother's release and declared Illus an enemy of the state. Then he stole all of Illus's land and property. Right. On the one hand, throwing the emperor's brother into prison is a bad move. On the other hand, taking the property of your best general and really, really annoying him is not a great move either. Both Illus and Zeno hadn't really thought hard enough about their actions, and there was no way the situation was going to end well. Illus, deciding quite rightly that he had nothing left to lose now Zeno had taken everything, declared the rebel leader emperor. Zeno allied himself with the Ostrogoths under their new leader, Theodoric, and used them to bring down the rebellion. It took Theodoric four years, but eventually he besieged the revolting forces, and Zeno was safe on his throne once more. The rebels were all dead, and their leaders' heads were shoved onto spikes and sent back to Constantinople for the emperor to view. Safe on his throne he might have been, but the emperor had little time to breathe before having to deal with the big problem of a massive horde of Ostrogoths in Roman territory, 
trying to find a homeland. This was a tricky situation, but Zeno, as usual, was politically clever enough to find the solution. And what was his solution? Well, it was basically this. Why try to solve one problem when you can solve two? But what was the other problem that Zeno had? The Western Empire had fallen and Italy was being ruled by a barbarian usurper. Theodoric the Ostrogoth was a brilliant leader of men and a great soldier. He also couldn't read or write and had to sign his name through a stencil. He approached Zeno and asked the Emperor what he was going to do for the Ostrogothic people now they'd given the Emperor so much help in defeating various uprisings. Zeno's solution was perfect. He told Theodoric there was a rich and fertile land nearby which his people could settle in. It was called Italy. All the Ostrogoths had to do was invade Italy, get rid of Odebaker and his armies and rule there in the name of the Emperor Zeno. Theodoric also thought this was a very fine plan and set off determinedly for Italy with his entire people. Zeno breathed a sigh of relief as he watched these dangerous friends leave his empire. Two problems, one solution. The Ostrogoths arrived in Italy and began the difficult task of defeating Odebaker. It took a bit longer than expected. At one point, it looked like Theodoric was going to be defeated, but the Ostrogoths were joined by some of their brothers. The Visigoths sent troops to their aid, and eventually in 493, Theodoric had Odebaker blockaded in Ravenna. It looked hopeless for Odebaker, but Theodoric offered him a deal. They would share power, and they would share the imperial palace, ruling Italy together. This was obviously a great idea. After all, look how well it worked out for Caracalla and Gedda, and for Pupienus and Balbinus. Ah, wait a minute, maybe not such a great idea after all. On the 15th of March, Theodoric invited Odebaker, his son and his army commanders to a massive banquet in his half of the palace. It would be the perfect celebration of their agreement. Odebaker was welcomed in with applause and cheering and was about to take his seat as the guest of honour when his enjoyment of the party was cut short. Theodoric stepped forward and with one stroke of his massive sword virtually cut his co-ruler in half. When he saw the result of his strike, he let out a booming laugh. The wretch, he giggled, could not have had a single bone in his body. All of Odebaker's party were killed too, and Theodoric settled down to reign in Italy. He dressed himself in purple and called himself King of the Ostrogoths. He kept his side of the bargain with Zeno, though, and only issued coins with the name of the Eastern Emperor on them. He ruled Italy wisely and cleverly for 33 years, and became well-loved by both Goths and Romans. He built a huge mausoleum in Ravenna, in which he was buried when he finally died in 526. The mausoleum still stands today. But now it's still 491, and we will not have cause to mention Italy for another 40 years or so. Zeno didn't live to see his plan succeed. He began to become a little senile in his old age, and became obsessed with who would succeed him. He kept having potential successors executed, and when he finally died of epilepsy in April 491, not too many people in his empire were sad to see him go. He was 66 years old, and had reigned in two separate segments for 16 years. His widow, Ariadne, was suddenly the focus of attention. The people in the streets greeted her as if she could decide who would be the next emperor. Give us an orthodox emperor, they cried. Give us a Roman emperor. So Ariadne did just that, and then six weeks later married him. Flavius Anastasius had been born in Dyrrhachium, modern Durazzo in Albania, on the Adriatic coast in 430. 
he was not well known in the court of Zeno, reaching the minor rank of silentiary in the palace. His religious knowledge, however, meant he was considered in 488 for promotion to Bishop of Antioch. He received a much better promotion in 491, when, already in his 60s, he was acclaimed Emperor of the Romans. Even though he was quite an old man, he was apparently still very handsome. He was given the name Dicorus, which means two pupils, because he had one blue eye and one black one. The people were delighted. Reign, Anastasius, they shouted. Reign as you have lived. And this he did. He was a good Christian and a very nice man. He wasn't cruel and didn't get angry, but he was very stingy. He cut spending on games and celebrations and set to work putting as much gold as possible into the imperial treasury. The people found this a bit annoying, but they realised that the empire was being well run and put up with not having lavish circuses for a while. This was a time for picking up the pieces of a shattered empire, not spending all the money on having a good time. Early in his reign, Anastasius had trouble with the Isaurians, the people of Zeno. The last emperor's brother, Longinus, despite being a useless idiot, thought that he should be on the throne instead of this old man with two different coloured eyes. He stirred up trouble, and pretty soon there was fighting in the streets of the capital. Anastasius had Longinus arrested, but exiled him to Alexandria instead of having his head rammed on a spike. The unrest was not finally dealt with for four years. The Isaurians were not the only people to blame for the unrest. The hippodromes and amphitheatres of the Roman Empire had long been home to four teams, the Blues, Greens, Reds and Whites, each supported by crowds cheering on their favourite charioteers and gladiators. At some point, the Reds and the Whites had become less popular and slowly faded, leaving just the Blues and the Greens. The evolution of these former sporting organisations is interesting, the Blues and the Greens changed from being teams to support at circus games into strong groups representing different types of people. The Blues tended to be the party of landowners and the aristocracy. The Greens were the party of normal tradespeople. Rioting between the two groups was becoming more common. On top of this, in the Balkans, a new people are about to enter our story. Raids across the Danube from as early as 493 had begun to cause the people of the Empire to become worried. Construction soon began of the long walls between the Propontis and the Black Sea, as well as renewed work on the Danube defences. The defensive buildings had been made possible once Theodoric's Goths had left the Balkans for Italy. So, who were the new people making the Romans' life difficult? Well, they were called the Bulgars, and although the threat they posed was not great in the 490s, we will have a lot more to say about them further on in our story. Anastasius dealt with the raids, unrest and uprisings sensibly, and soon all was calm. There was a brief war with Persia, but the empire slowly became stronger during his reign, as there were fewer active enemies both inside and outside its borders. Apart from being a bit mean, Anastasius's only main fault was that he wasn't very good at managing the religion of the empire. He believed in monophysitism, and this caused splits between various church factions which nearly cost the old man his throne. In 512, in the Hippodrome, there was rioting which spilled out onto the streets. Anastasius had had enough. The next day, as he was watching the games, he took off his imperial diadem and laid it down. The old but still firm and upstanding emperor declared he was stepping down and they should choose a successor. The people were scared at what might happen and begged him to stay on. He did, and from that day on, there was no more trouble. As we've said, Anastasius was an old man when he assumed the purple. 
but the old man lived and lived and lived. As he lived on, he, like Zeno before him, became obsessed with who would succeed him. He had no sons, but expected that one of his three nephews would be the next emperor. According to an ancient source, known as the Anonymous Felicianus, Anastasius decided he would let God decide which. One day, the three nephews were coming to the palace for dinner. Anastasius chose one of the three couches on which they would sit, and put underneath it a piece of paper with the word regnum, meaning rain, on it. Whichever one of the nephews sat on that couch, the emperor decided, would be the next to wear the purple. The three men entered the room and moved towards the couches, and then they sat down. Unfortunately, two of them sat on the same couch, and the one with regnum note was not used. Anastasius took this as a sign that none of them would be the next ruler, and that instead the next emperor would be the first person to enter his bedchamber the next day. Most unexpectedly, the first person to enter the bedchamber was one of the emperor's trusted soldiers. Flavius Justinus had been born in 450 and was a peasant. He kept pigs for a living. As a teenager, he and two companions had fled from a barbarian invasion, taking refuge in Constantinople, with nothing more than the ragged clothes on their backs and a sack of bread between them. Justin soon joined the army, and because of his ability rose through the ranks to become a general, and eventually commander of the palace guard. Justin was an unlikely future emperor. He was already in his late sixties, and like Theodoric the Ostrogoth, could not even sign his own name. Anastasius, though, was convinced that it was God's will, and proclaimed Justin to be his successor. Now, this is a lovely story, and there may be some truth in it, but it's much more likely that Justin simply bribed his way to the top job. Anastasius died in 518, having reigned over the empire pretty successfully for a quite remarkable 27 years. When he finally died, he was 88 years old. No emperor had lived this long before him, and only one would after him. He had successfully stashed treasure throughout his reign, and left his successor a treasury overflowing with 320,000 more pounds of gold than when he came to the throne. It's often said that not much happened during the reign of Anastasius Dicorus, but he was exactly what the eastern half of the empire required at the time. This nice old man, with one blue eye and one black eye, gave the empire what it needed most. Stability. The new emperor, Justin, was not quite as dim as we have made him sound, and he knew he could rule well. He surrounded himself with wise and trusted advisers. One of these advisers proved to be the most important extra thing going for him that would help cement his rule, a very clever, cultured, ambitious and talented nephew named Peter Sabatius. But we'll have to wait a bit before we meet them properly. In the next chapter, we will examine the reasons for the fall of Rome and the West, and try to understand why the East survived and then prospered. Well, the Christmas season is nearly upon us. I will be taking the Christmas week off, so the next episode of the Myths and History of Greece and Rome will be released on Sunday the 3rd of January. In the meantime, if you'd like to leave me any feedback or just ask a question, then please contact me by email mythandhistory at gmail.com or friend me on Facebook, Paul Vincent Myth and History. You can also pop down to the website www.mythandhistory.podbean.com where you may like to leave a seasonal donation. So, have a very Merry Christmas, a Happy New Year, and I'll speak to you again in 2016.